When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Christy Dignam sadly died a couple of days ago and uh, I just wanted to uh, put out this podcast again from six years ago when uh, Christy had invited me into his house for a chat and um, he was very open, very honest, talked about his not just the musical career but his addiction to heroin as well and he was just a genuinely brilliant honest very witty very funny um and talented man and a nice lovely man and uh it's very sad to hear, see him go i knew we all knew it was coming but uh it's still a shock um so I hope you enjoy this. This is my chat with Christy Dignam. All right, Christy. Um, I... Uh I was just actually up there talking to uh, I don't know if you know Eric Lawler Eric Lawler he's a comedian he lives up in Poppentry anyway I do know him yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's good yeah he's good and yeah. Willie White and Willie White's great yeah. he's from uh, Ballymona that's right yeah it's funny I, I met Willie the first time I met Willie we were up and we were doing a gig in Mount Joy and he was a prisoner at the time and uh, I remember looking at him and he was in fucking bits, you know, and thinking, Jase, he, 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 I think he had six months left of a sentence. I said, he's not even going to make the next six months. The next time I was with Willie, we were doing a gig in Mountjoy and he was one of the artists. So it was fucking great, a great success story, you know. Right, yeah, yeah. Willie, Willie's a lovely bloke. The first right? time you saw him, he was in prison. Yeah, he was a prisoner at the time, you know, yeah. so... And, and so then when we went back up, he was he was uh, performing for the prisoners the next time I seen him, you know, which was great because I thought he was, when I seen him in prison, I thought, and this fella's fucked, you know. He's, yeah. Because he was really bad at the time. I think he was strung out and stuff at the time, you know. Yeah. I don't think he'd mind me saying that, he knows. You no, know. I've talked to him uh, on the podcast and he's, right. he's kind of told me the whole yeah. story, yeah. So that was it, uh, yeah. So Willie, Willie's mm. a killed bloke, you know. Yeah, he's funny. He's a funny fella. Did you grow up near Willie? Did you grow up what, no, in I grew Fingless, up in Fingless, Fingless, Fingless West here, yeah. But I would have known Willie when I, because I was strung out as well. So I, I mean, we used to score in Bally once, so I kind of. Oh, you would have known him when you were. Uh, active. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what you call it, active. Well, that's what I call it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Right. An active participant. Right, yeah. okay. So tell me when you were, when you were growing up were you yeah. were you a performer or like from an early age from a child did you feel like you'd yeah, well, you yeah well you know I didn't think I was and I looked at I look at kids now and they're in the Billy Barry school of fucking music and it sickens me it fucking sickens me and I was nearly one of those kids when I think about it right because when I was in school I was in the school choir I loved singing I always loved singing so I was singing from the times and when I remember being a young young kid like six, seven, eight, six, seven, eight, and hearing songs and thinking, when I'm a singer, I'm going to record that song. 
Yeah. Honest to God, that, that it age. was real weird. But then, when I was about 11, this woman started a troop and fingers the black and white minstrels. Very, yeah, <laughs> very <not> PC. <laughs> but, uh, I, so, I, got, I went around getting all the photographs and burning them. <laughs> but, uh, so, I did that for a couple of years. And we used to go around doing talent contests and all that, you know. Mm. So then, nothing for a while. And then I was in, when I was in secondary school, uh, Joe Jewell, the guitarist of Asnan, had formed a band and uh, they split up then. So I, I went down to him, I knocked down to him on Friday, one Friday and said, listen, I want to get a band together, do you want to get a band together? And he said, oh, call back next Friday. And, and I'd done that for about five weeks. And then I went down one day and uh, we got a gig in the Ballymun Towers, actually, it was a first gig. Right. So we had a week or something to rehearse for. And I remember the... Uh, it was it was for the Irish youth something something, but it was really an IRA fundraiser gig. Oh yeah. They asked us to play the bleed national anthem at the end of in the fucking clue. But I still don't know the national anthem. But uh, so And was that like a around time of punk or Oh that would have been yeah. that would have been around the evening before punk. Yeah. This would have been oh well the beginning of seventy five kind of, you know, so uh, and all oh, right, yeah. so you wouldn't it uh, wouldn't have been punk then really no. what kind of music were you doing? Was it covers, was it? Or? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. We used to do Tin Lizzie covers and shit mm. like that, you know mm. and oh we didn't write songs, we didn't know I had a clue about it. never even thought of writing a song. Do you know what I mean? We used to do Bowie stuff and Tin Lizzie or whatever. Yeah. Lou Reed, all that sort of stuff. Tell me, how did Bowie affect you then growing up? Because uh, like, for me, it, I Bowie actually cried. Fucking. I don't cry when famous <coughs> people die, but no, Bowie died. I'm, I'm still in fucking shock over the Bowie yeah. thing, you know. To me, you know, if, if my influences throughout my life was in a cake graph, he'd mm. be fucking three quarters of that cake, you know. Yeah. You know, he's a huge, huge influence. And, you know... You look at you look at artists now, right? Alice Cooper, right? Mm. Alice Cooper came out with an idea, like we were talking about a few minutes ago with you about the Father Ted thing, right? Oh yeah. Alice Cooper came out with an image back in the fucking seventies. If you see Alice Cooper today, he's the same haircut, same black eyes, and there's low. I meet loads of singers like that, or artists like that, mm. that he got a little niche twenty, thirty, forty years ago, mm. and they still look at Bowie. Mm. You look at Bowie from 1975 up, and he grew old gracefully. Mm. Everything, even even his death was graceful. Even the way he fucking his funeral was graceful, had class. Mm. Everything about the man was just pure fucking class. And everything he did was at the highest echelons of fucking whatever he was trying, you know. And he did a lot of shit, you know. But the way the way I look yeah, at he it kept is, trying exactly you know. the way I look at it, I would rather I would rather somebody like like for example Radiohead are a kind of another example where they come out with Creep and that kind of brilliant fucking albums and then done OK Computer which is a total twist around you know mm. and even if, it, if if you didn't like OK Computer and thought it was shit at least he tried something fucking different and Bowie was the same you know you, you know when you're when you're trying something trying to do something new all the time of course you're going to miss the target every now and again anyway you could ask yourself what is the target do you know what I'm saying mm. maybe that was Bowie's target it mightn't be your target do you know, it mightn't be what you wanted I'm, see, see you're in a weird position when you're in, and I only know this from my small fucking um, association with music compared to Bowie but your fans right for your next album do you want the song to be like the last song but different do you know what I mean? Mm. So you're trying to make something new and fresh 
but still retain the same the same teams or something that's in the you know so people still recognise you as fucking who you are do you know what I mean like we couldn't come out with a metal album now do you know what I mean or something like that well we could but, but I do think every band has a sound anyway and no matter what style you try you probably have the but look sound look at Bowie yeah would you say Bowie look at his sounds do you know what I mean? That's from Tonner. That's how good he is. But you still know it's Bowie, though. That's because of his vocal. That's, yeah. that's because of his voice. Right. You know, he can't change the voice he has. Mm-hmm. He's still the same voice. Mm-hmm. And he, that's another thing that makes him brilliant. When, when it, I, I studied singing for fucking 13 years or something. And the one thing I learned about singing was that when, when we start off as singers, we like the way Bowie sings this, say, door, window, and room. We like the way Phil Linnett sings sky, plane and car and we get all these idioms yeah. and you end up putting all these idioms together and you start singing and you go well I was a roller and you're singing this fucking American mid-Atlantic accent mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? you hear blokes from Fingless singing well I was going down the street just you know and you think what the fuck it's about stripping all that away and getting yeah. back to what you are and just, just getting your essence because that's the only thing that's original it's the only thing the world hasn't heard yeah. and Bowie seemed to know that Inherently, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so all the time. That's why we are saying he had that thing because he always sounded like Bowie. But that was his vocal. If you listen to what was going on behind him, that was totally different. It was, yeah. That's what I'm talking and it, about. But it did take him a while to discover himself. Yeah. His first album, the laughing now. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit of shit at the beginning. Of course, there was there's plenty of it actually. Yeah, and there's a bit of shit later on. You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. you know. That's what I'm saying. When you're when you're trying something new and fresh. Mm. You're going to miss the target every now and again, mm. you know. But when he hit the once target... Once he hit it, once Hunky Dory came out, that was just incredible. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unfucking believable yeah. You know, and even even some of the stuff, even the Let's Stand stuff that would, you know, by, by the purest Bowie fans would be kind of looked down on. I still think there were some greats on China. Well, China Girls, a fucking yeah. Iggy Pop song. But... There's some great stuff oh, on that. Let's dance, let's dance is a great, yeah. but it's just people didn't like it because he went that commercial and all. Yeah. But up to then, Bowie had only sold up to a few years ago. Bowie only sold nine million albums. Now you look at fucking Shade sold nine million of our first album. Mm. Bowie didn't sell a lot of albums, and people used to be inspired by Bowie. And like a lot would say, people that like us that would be artists, mm. you know, our in bands would have bought Bowie albums, mm. but the general public didn't. And people thought Bowie was this huge, huge star. Bowie only started making money when the internet came out, mm. and he, he got on top of that. He he became he was the force to get into that and use that as mm. you know for for selling his, his music and stuff. So that's where he made all his money, you know. And that's an you know. So Bowie needed a let's dance to fucking pay the rent, yeah. you know. So. And oh, actually, can you remember the first time you saw Bowie? Did you see him on top of the pops or something like that? Was yeah, you? Life on Mars. And, I'll and never fucking forget yeah. it. I'll never forget it. Life on Mars was the first time I saw Bowie singing. You know, it was on top of the pops as well, yeah. and that was it. From that moment, it was the first record I ever bought. Yeah. And from that moment on, I was sold. You know, and, and I remember looking at I remember looking at uh, the NME years later. You know. And we say in the late seventies, he was playing in Newcastle, and I was trying to get the money up to go over to Newcastle to see him. Mm. And then, he, then when he brought out the Let's Dance album, he was playing in Milton Keynes. Went over the Serious Moonlight Tour, it was called. Went over there to see him. Got a fucking a, a train or a boat across to Hollyhead, bus down to London, another bus back up to Milton Keynes, just nice. to see the gig. It was unbelievable, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, on the way back, we. Uh, we had a, a Bowie session in, in the television room on the boat and all, you know, it was bleeding great. Wow. And, the, and then 
uh, is it? I think it's thirty years ago. You you got to open for Bowie and Slane. Yeah, then, yeah. So then when 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 we got we we were signed to EMI, and Bowie was with EMI at the time, and we heard he was coming over here to Slane. So we said to the manager, we said, listen, we don't care if you never get us another gig. We don't care if you don't do anything else for us. Get us fucking to support the Bowie and Slane. So we got it, and. Uh, you know, that, that was a big moment, you know, because, you know, to play with Bowie was fucking huge. I remember at one point, we had this song called Sands of Time, and there was a kind of build-up in it, kind of... One, two, three, much! And the song kind of kicked mm. off, you know, it was in the middle of the song. And uh, there was Peter Frampton and Carlos Alomar, and Bowie were standing at the side of the stage, and they kind of looked at each other and, you know... And it was fucking, you got like the thumbs up. The yeah, and that that was like unfucking believable, you know, unbelievable. Just to to, to think that even heard one of our songs, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's incredible actually. Yeah. Um, I, I just think it's amazing though when you're growing up. Like I grew up in a farm, I faith. You grew up in Fingless, but you both identified Bowie. with Bowie. Yeah, that's incredible. You see, you, you know, see, yeah, that's the thing. It, Sorry. But it's just an escape from that humdrum world. Yeah. You see, there's there's something out there that yeah. you can attain or that you but can... But the fact that he could, we could yeah. both identify with them, coming, as you say, from totally different places, you know, yeah. that's the sign of a true great artist. Because yeah. a great artist can... Like, you look at the songs like My Way, you know, or yeah. uh, Go On Now, Go, Walk Out The Door, Just Turn Around Now. Every yeah. woman on earth would like to think that the bloke that shafted her back when she was a teenager... Was walking up to the door and she said, "No, fuck off, go on." <laughs> you know, every board would love to think that's her, you know. You listen to my way. Everybody would love to be at the end of their life thinking, you know, I might have done this wrong, that yeah. wrong, but I did it my way. So when you can get into that, when you can hit that that nerve that that hits mass, and Bowie had that, mm. so it just proves it. And what you just said, we came from totally different backgrounds, yet we could both identify with them, you know, mm. because. As you say, it's an escape from the from whatever we whatever our normal life was. It was an escape out of that, mm. you know what I mean? And that's but, what Bobby brought to the pet table. But I think you might have thought. I mean, I would have thought growing up and uh, that uh, being in a band was an unattainable thing. Until, oh, absolutely, yeah. Until punk happened, would you yeah, agree there? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I remember. It's funny. I remember somebody telling me about the uh, about uh, Slade. Do you remember the band Slade? Slade yeah. And I heard you were from Wolverhampton, from a working class place like Fingless, mm. and that fucking blew me away. That was an epiphany for me, because mm. I thought you were born a rock star. Do you know what I mean? I mm. thought God yeah. appeared to Mick Jagger and says, you have the divine right to be a rock star, and appeared to Bowie and all these people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So then, when the punk thing happened, uh, then, then you know, when we were growing up, they were the bands we were looking at, and all that prog rock was huge, Genesis and bands like that, mm. Pink Floyd and stuff, and they were all... Way unattainable, well. but so yeah. unattainable. Yeah. It was so far beyond your, the realm of your world, and then punk happened, and that was just holy fuck. Here it is. Now you could, you could that, that. I loved it. You know the whole everything about it. You know, do you remember the dandelion mark? I don't know if you're around for yeah, that, was that period, yeah. but that was just the fucking energy. It's funny. I had a, a big row with John Carney, who wrote that sing. You know the sing street, yeah, yeah, sing movie. street, the film. Yeah. We were out now. Um, I, I was going to, uh, you know, the can I have the cancer thing. I was going to the hospital mm. there a few weeks ago. I'm still I'm doing chemo at the moment. And I was on my way in, and I seen a bus. This is a while, but before the film came out, 
and I seen or new Irish movie, fucking the new commitments, Irish production, Irish this, Irish that, Irish the other, you know. Mm. Fucking great, great called Sing Street. It's a musical mm. featuring Spandau Ballet, fucking Duran mm. Duran, who were uh, uh, fucking all these English bands, you know. Mm. So I thought oh, that's a bit fucking weird, you know. So I met John Kearney in RTA, I was doing the Late Late Show, and he was there. And he said something, he asked me what I thought or something. He asked me, and I said, well, I'll tell you. I says, I thought it was strange that you were writing about a time in Ireland when music was probably the best it's ever been in vibrancy, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And a new idea. It's like so what, your band, of Gornica, just fucking blue in heavens. All, whether you liked them or not, the Cactus World News is, and two and new as the house. DC9. DC9. Some kind of wonderful event called Some Kind of Wonder. That was brilliant. Like a big fire. So he wrote a movie in Ireland about a time and but didn't have one Irish fucking song in it, you know. So he said, oh, there, Glenn Hansard wrote the theme song or something, right? Yeah. Do you know, but this thing that, this thing in Ireland that we still have, that we have to be endorsed by fucking England before we're taken seriously, it's ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. I, I get annoyed by that all the time. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, even in the comedy world. Yeah, especially in the comedy world. on BBC, people yeah. think you're amazing. That's it, that's it. Or you go on the, the Apollo, the live oh, the, the English Apollo. like you, you must be good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to go out. You know these um, hmm. QI or so, you know these programmes, if you appear yeah. on one of them, you know the panel programmes? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, uh, uh, not, not, not Jason Bourne, you know the other Bourne? Uh, Ed Bourne. Ed Bourne. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's all he does as far as I'm concerned, because I've never seen him fucking standing up and doing a, a, a comedy show. I've never seen him in a sitcom. I've never seen him in anything else. The only thing I ever seen him on was panel shows. Panel shows, yeah. But um, maybe that's his bag. <laughs> I don't know. So, like... The first band is that the band Electron. Is Electron. So that's yeah, so, yeah. so yeah. So we start found Electron, which is doing all these covers and stuff like that. So then punk kind of happened for us, say in seventy six. Hold that closer to you. Punk started happened in say seventy six, seventy seven when it happened yeah. for us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, over here. Yeah. By the time it really got here, you know, in its full force, and then the, uh, the, all the things changed. So then, Aslan art. Oh, well, you were in Electron. Electron were gone mm. then. That, that was, we had to knock that on the head because... Oh, Electron was before the punky thing. Yeah. Was it? Ah, right right, 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 right. So then we found a band called Mila, Mila 18. 18. Now, I lived on Chandler's Road for about a year and a half. Right. And I used to see Mila 18 graffitied everywhere. And I didn't know what it meant or what it was. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we used to have... Uh, my brother used to do that. He used to just go around. He had a, yeah. he had a fucking... Um, a stencil, yeah, just a piece of cardboard with a thing cut out to me, and I used to go and spray it, it was everywhere. everywhere. Where's the name come from? It's a book by Leon Euris. It's oh, about uh, Mila Eighteen was a was a, a a house in Warsaw. It was the uh, the address of a house in Warsaw that used to hide the Jews used to hide in oh, right. during the Second World War, okay. and uh, it was like a. a um, like in the Anne Frank type, a safe house, or yeah, it was. There was kind of a, do you know the the, the, the French resistance? So it was like a, a Polish resistance right. kind of thing going on. And Leon Euris wrote a book about it called Mila Eighteen. So for some reason that impressed us, pressed pressed me when I was a kid. Mm. So you know we got always looking yeah. for a name. And before we did it, XV one 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 because we thought that would be cool. Roman you know? yeah. Because you're so intellectual, you know? <laughs> you know the way you are. Well, you so, know the way a lot of, well, even the band I was in, Guernica, was a bit pretentious, to be honest. 
But you are pretentious I, when you're a kid. You know, I you know, don't, yeah. you know. It's fucking great. Because we were talking about George Bourne and that's what he hated about our name as well, that we were just normal lads trying to be pretentious. I remember he used to hate the name Les Enfants as well. He'd go, what the fuck? You fucking yeah. French. Like, what do yeah. you just call it? The children. The yeah, but that would be, <laughs> I think he's right in that sense about yeah. Les Enfants, you know. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like what we were talking about, the accents thing. Why do we assume... Like, we hear Bob Marley, and it sounds exotic to us, you know, that, that mm. Jamaican accent. Mm. We hear Damon Albarn talking in his Cockney accent. We think that's fucking exotic. Mm. We hear Liam Gallagher in his Manchester accent. Did they not realise that when they hear our Dublin accent, they think that's exotic? Mm. Do you know what I mean? But, you know, we, we always kind of try to copy or emulate all these Yeah, but things. I think I was talking to someone about that. I think that's still a hangover of colonialism. Absolutely. We, we, Absolutely yeah. it is. And it's the same thing what we talked about, about this endorsement that we still need mm. from... I remember doing a thing a few years ago, right? Um, I did this, the Irish football song you know, the, the World Cup, in the World Cup, right? Yeah. So I sang the whole song. It was actually in a house song. And uh, they changed the lyrics of it into... Oh, uh, uh, great art or uh, whatever. You know, yeah. it wasn't a great art. It was no. Another one. no. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I forget, I forget it now. Anyway, I did the whole song, right? So um, Nicky Bourne out of Westlife came in and done a few doo-wops in the chorus, right? Mm. So... Ray Darcy was at the run of the whole thing. He, he organised it all and it was for his show and all this carry on. And it became the official Irish song of that year, right? Mm. The football song. So we're doing a video for it and we're, we're in the... the uh, he said, right, we have to be in the airport hotel on Sunday at fucking two o'clock to do the video for it. The, foot, the Irish football team are going to be there and we're going to do this video. Mm. I arrived at two o'clock, right? So he said, well, you can wait. could you wait there for a while? So I sat in the lobby of the hotel till half four, right? I'm fucking sitting there and I'm starting to crack up, right? Mm. So, half hour, the whole thing started to kick off. Nicky Bourne walked in then. He ran over. Oh, we have a, a room for you, Nicky. Do you hear the fucking room? Brought up to a room with bleeding sandwiches and coffee and all. Mm. I'm, I sang the fucking song. And I'm sitting there since two o'clock like a fucking doorman. Do you know what I mean? And this was simply because he was in Westlife. Do you know mm. what I mean? Mm. And that's a, that infuriates me. A mm. fucking, it's ridiculous. It's outrageous that you would treat. And I, I remember at the time saying to Ray Darcy, mm. this is fucking outrageous the way you would treat another Irish artist. I said, I have earned, I have done more to earn respect in this country as a musician than that cunt will ever do. Mm. But he's earned more money, so you treat him like that. That's mm. fucking, I said, that's disgusting what you've just done. Huge row. That's it's a it's a throwback as you said from mm. from the famine and the colonialism and all that. It's a throwback to all that. Yeah, we still feel inferior. Inferior. And you yeah. have to not that that our caps to the British, you know. Yeah, I would have thought that would be gone by the time this new generation came along. But it doesn't seem to have. No, it's, it's that's in our it's DNA. It's going to take a long time for yeah. that to get out of us, yeah. you know. Like it's only a hundred, what two hundred, hundred and fifty years ago, the famine. You know, when you think right. about it. Yeah. Um, I was going to say so meal at 18 they were kind of punky so, you, so we yeah, we, we kind of got into the punky you know the whole vibe the ethos of the whole punk thing mm. and I just loved all that you know and I said we used to go to see all the you know punk bands were coming out in the north the Outcast and Rudy and all that do you remember all those bands just yeah. coming out in the north and we used to go they'd be playing the McGonagall's and all that Oh man, just brilliant. Fucking brilliant. I loved it. Loved it. And it opened, it, it made We're it possible, about, didn't it? Uh, what other venues? The Magnet, right? The Magnet. That's what we played in the Magnet. We used to, I played there with the Blades, supporting the Blades and stuff. And, yeah. But uh, the yeah, the, the, the Bag the of Toners. Rooms. Toners. Do you remember Toners beside the Bag of? Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. the kind of downgrade from the Bag of, you know. <laughs> so those McGonagall's, all those places. Uh, 
Fuck. The, the, the top hat out in Dunleary. You went to see the Clash out there. Oh, were you there? The Virgin Prunes as well. They used to go to see them in the, in the Project Art Centre. Mm. There was all these. There was a great gig called the 24-hour gig Into Darkness. Do you remember that? No. You played it. The, the, a load of bands come over from England, come down to the north. Uh, the Virgin Prunes. It was just 24 hours. P- Pill played it, actually. Wow. But um, it was great, yeah. Wow. Um, so was, was, was me the 18 not... What made you change? What changed from mid eighteen to Aslan? It's just, it's some of the same lineup, isn't it? Right. We're talking. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going along with Mila eighteen, and we are. We are right. You know, it's funny. Les Enfants had a bit of a hand in it. Mm. We are playing in the Ivy Rooms. Do you remember the Ivy Rooms yeah. in Parnell yeah. Street? Played there myself. So we were upstairs and they were downstairs, and it was a, it was a Saturday night, I think, and um, the play the gig was jammed, right? And there was about ten people at Les Enfants' gig. So the following Monday, I opened the paper and Les Enfants signed multi-million pound deal with Chrysalis Records. I couldn't fucking believe it, you know. I was saying, these cunts can't even draw a crowd in Dublin, you know. And so went to, I was working in Telecom Aaron at the time, I was a telephone technician. And Joe was the same, the guitarist. And uh, so I went to the band the next day and I said, right, I'm leaving my job. We're going full time with this music. I says because the only way is because we have these jobs. It's robbing us of the hunger to succeed because we know we've got these jobs to fall back on. You know, so it says I'm, I'm leaving my job. So Joe says yes. Yeah, so am I. There was a piano player we had walked in Guinnesses, and he's on oh, me bollocks. I'm not leaving my job. You know, so he's dead in the show. So it cut down to just me and Joe. I think was the only two left from Aslan. Mm. So we had a guy that used to call Mick McKenna, who used to be in Depeche Mode. He was living in Ballymun, he was going to Ballymun Comp, and we heard about this guy. So he, he played bass guitar, mm. and when Depeche Mode went all synthy, he fucked them out. Yeah. <laughs> so we grabbed him. Yeah. So he came in. So we were going around at the time in Fingers, there was all these, the Alien Comfort and all, there was all these bands. So we were, I was trying to get the best musicians out of every band, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So Alan Downey was uh, the drummer from, from Alien Comfort, yeah. but he was only about fucking 12 or something at the time, I can't remember, but he couldn't go into pubs or anything, we used to have to lie about his age and all, to play in the likes of the baggy. But we asked him to join and he says, uh, let me think about it. I felt like slapping the head off me. I'm a little cunt. You're getting a chance to be an air band. Because you know, we always think your band's the best band in the world. Yeah. So uh, I thought he was a cheeky little bastard. But I kind of admired the spunk as well. Do you know what I mean? That he done Because he was much younger than us. So, so that was that. So we were going along. And then we got Tony McGuinness in the band. And Tony played acoustic guitar, right? And Mick was playing bass, the Depeche Mode dude. Now, Mick was a good songwriter. But, uh, Jordan, we only sit down for a break in a rehearsal. Tony would pick up the bass. And, Holy fuck. You know, he just he's killed it. He's a great bass player. He still is. Tony's a fantastic bass player. Yeah. To have a listen to some of his bass, of, of our early stuff. And he played fretless bass a lot at the, at the beginning. Beautiful bass player. He was influenced by Pino Palladino. Do you remember Pino Palladino? No. He used to play with Paul Young and all those people. Oh, right. He was yeah, a great bass player. Guy, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, him. That was big. Mick Karn played the fretless around the same time in Japan, right? Mm. Yeah, all that. Yeah. yeah Tony yeah. would have been influenced by. Or that. That, was yeah. the, that was after the punk thing wasn't it the new romantic yeah, thing you know? so um, so Tony so anyway we said to Mick one day listen you'll have to go on acoustic and work it. so Mick wasn't having that so Mick left the band we were down to a four piece mm-hmm. so it was me Joe uh, Tony and Alan 
we had the four members of me like them. So then we were going around doing a few gigs. So we were doing a thing called Lark by Lark in the Park. Mm-hmm. Dave Fanning used to run it. And Les Zon- Zonf- Yes, yeah. Yeah. In, the, in the park, St. Anne's Park. Yeah. So Les Zonfons were the headlining band. We were the opening band. We were the, 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 the kind of the lowest of the support bands. So we, we, we got Billy. Billy was... Uh, he asked could he do backing vocals and so we used to get him up to do backing vocals so the boy he used to come we used to rehearse in Alan's gaff in his garage and Billy worked in Bowling's he was a baker so he used to come we used to rehearse five days six days a week from nine till five every day so Billy used to come up about three o'clock after work with a load of cakes so we used to let him rehearse for us because he used to bring the cakes up right so we got a fanning session I was just a a quick one on the gig just the St. Anne's gig we went out and the gig was on a Sunday and on a Friday I had to go over to an industrial estate in fucking Ballyferm and I bought this dry ice right blocks of dry ice so we had to wrap them in fucking bales of newspaper and put them in these big cardboard boxes to stop it melting right because we were going to use these on the gig in in the park dry ice was actually something you fit Physically bought, like yeah, we, we bought the blocks of it, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> great idea. So we went out on stage and fucking put the drawers. One went fucking gone. You couldn't six lighting a cigarette on stage. You couldn't even fucking see it. Oh really? The work we had to put in to get keeping this dry ice alive. Do you know what I mean? And fucking ridiculous. But anyway, yeah. so that was a funny thing. So anyway, so Billy used to come up. So we got a fanning session, mm. you know, and we got a hundred and ninety pound for it. Fanning used to get paid to do a fanning session. We done three songs. So we went up to the built in. It's up past the airport, and we got fucking pissed. You know, it was the first time ever to earn money in a band. Mm. So we got absolutely pissed. So the next day, we went up to rehearsal at nine o'clock, you know, and Billy arrives in at nine o'clock. I said, what the fuck are you down here, you know, wet and no cakes? What's the story? He said, oh, he's asked me last night to join the band. I went, oh, fuck. <laughs> 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 so that's how Billy got into the band. He's been in ever since. Yeah, so then he picked yeah. up a bit of keyboard, a bit of keyboard, a bit of harmonic, and yeah. he became an integral part of Aslan, but, you know, that's how he got into the band. So that's how... Can you put your finger on why, like, even in Miller 18, you were getting big crowds I don't fucking know to this day I still don't know why we, how we do it I swear to God like we did three Vicar Streets just there at Christmas mm. and just sold out the three gigs are sold out I st- and, and like I'm getting young kids like 18 mm. 16 year olds to fucking 70 there was no one can se- celebrate our 80th birthday at Vicar Street last mm. Christmas you know Right through, I don't know how that. But I mean, I, I can, I can really see how, how you do it now. But when you're starting now, you haven't got any publicity, right? No, I don't you know. know. Uh, it was started off as families. Like I come from, I have eight brothers and sisters, and yeah. they all had mates. Do you know what I mean? And so that's where it really started, isn't it? You know, and but like there was, they became like. I don't know what would you call like a symbol for this north side area like yeah but like, that, that worked against us did it absolutely we're still saying to this day we're still saying as these scumbags who rob cars and batter L ones but the odd time write a song from the north side like I remember we, we were playing a gig one time in Vicar Street and, and the point actually and uh, I, was, I was in the car and there was a joke on FM 104 one of the DJs and he said oh, everybody got their Ben Sherman's and their Ronnie's out Aslan are in town tonight you know and that's the impression people right, yeah. you know now, now, we do things, me and Joe do this acoustic thing where we go around all these little theatres and it's just it's just me and Joe and we tell stories about where the songs yeah. came from and we play some of the more obscure Aslan stuff as opposed to the crazy world stuff and all. And 
I found you are getting a completely different audience, an older audience who are sitting down and listening to the songs because it wasn't in a pub or, you know, it wasn't yeah. any of that mad, you know, because people expect that. They think, you know, they're going to get their bags robbed or their gigs and stuff like that, you know. You think? To, to this day, it's yeah. still the same, you know. Like, a classic example, the faint, the Jerry fucking Ryan, the Jerry Ryan fella, right? Yeah. I remember we were sitting again at one of the at one of these awards things, you know, and we we're at the table, and I was sitting here, Jerry Ryan was there, and Dave Fanning was there, right? And there's all our wives and all were sitting at this table, right? And Jerry's around talking to Dave Fanning, oh fucking, how's the bleeding down, fucking Christy? Really? You know, dumbing down for you, you know, and I thought, you fucking prick, you know. Mm. That was the attitude, always has been. Still, it still exists to a certain extent, not as bad as it was. But that, so that little working class, finglessy thing, mm. northsidey thing that started off maybe being a little bit endearing, and it was almost, for the likes of the, the, the RTE Dublin Force, uh, it was almost like their little uh, forage into the bleeding the slums yeah, the ghettos do you know yeah, what I mean yeah, and getting a little bit, it. yeah exactly you yeah. know so but it, it tended to work against us right. as well it, it, to, to, to a large extent you know maybe the doctors had the same thing as only they yeah. had the uh, the, the culture, culture thing yeah. <laughs> and they're fucking huge we, we did we yeah. were up in London last week and they were over there to be doing a tour of fucking Scotland and Britain yeah. and that like they're jamming people in these places yeah and outside of Ireland no one we played with them Cares. in Dubai. Yeah. yeah? We played a gig with them in Dubai. And they were fucking it was a great gig, you know? Yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah. they, they can do it. Because if you're Irish and you're away, like I remember seeing them in Dubai and they're doing this song and he's saying, and I'm standing there in my Galway jersey and I'm 50 yards out from the post and I'm looking at the post in Crow Park yeah. and I'm running at the wall and you could see all the crowds bleeding tears running down really? there. Right? Yeah. And I thought, oh man, you have a sust, haven't you? Yeah. You know? Well, they, it's they, like the soap today. They, what is, it's great when something that is local can be identified in the universally, you know. Absolutely. Everyone has their football team, everyone has their yeah. small town. Yeah. It's not parochial. It's 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 that same thing that we talked about with Bowie. You know, mm. it's hitting the fucking nerve that 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 everybody can feel. You know what I mean? That everybody can identify with. Mm. And yeah. the sort of just kind of have that. You know, yeah. whether you whether you love them or hate them. You know, whether you know. You have that. Anyway, well, uh, so you 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 were struggling then, I think, to get a record deal. Would that be correct? Like, oh that fuck was yeah, yeah. Well, that was the thing then. Saga. <laughs> yeah, well, every band wasn't at that time. You wanted yeah. to get the big deal, especially after the Les Enfants thing, you know. Because I remember seeing them then on the tube a while, a couple of months later. And, oh man, that was the. You know, do you remember the tube? There's Enfants on the tube. Yeah, yeah. really. Well, so you know, yes. so you oh, seeing it. So so we had to get a record deal. Had to get a record deal. So um, we, there was a band called. Toy with Rhythm, right? Yeah. And they were playing a gig in the Revenue Commissioners in North Great George Street, and we were supporting them. And a few record companies came to see them. And we were, as I said, we were, so the record companies start, were coming over to us after it, you know what I mean, and fucking talking to us and all that. And the manager of, an, of Toy with Rhythm, then Danny Kenny, mm. started to manage us, right? So he was, he sent, he, he knew how to kind of deal with these people we didn't so we were going and we were getting we were doing loads of showcases because once one record company they were looking for the next U2 at the time do you mm. know what I mean so once one record company 
showed any interest, they all start coming. But then as soon as one rejected you, they were yeah. all gone. You know, that was the way the system. So we were, we weren't ready at the time. Do you know what I mean? We were only kind of starting to find our feet as, as musicians. So they, we were seeing too early, I think, you know. Mm. So the record companies were coming over. I remember doing a, a showcase in the television club. I don't know if you remember I that. Remember that was a huge club, right? So mm. there was just us on stage, full production, with fucking three chairs in the hall three record company blokes yeah. sitting in it you know and we're playing as if it's a full venue yeah. do you know what I mean it was hard shit That's you know nuts. I, yeah. I've heard about that kind of thing yeah so, so well, we did we did a lot of shit like that but I remember that you know your man it was Chrysalis Records again and he said listen we're going to sign the band fucking love it we just have to work out the economics it's fucking great you know so they went home Monday morning we got a phone I've changed the mind now mm. So that was happening all the time where we, we were just about to sign the fucking deal, you know. Another time we were signing a deal, we had a guy called, this, just before Danny Kenny, um, uh, Dick Kenny, uh, uh, this other guy was managing us anyway, and uh, he rang me from the airport on the way over to London to meet the record company. I wouldn't be able to handle it. So he just, he just lost it. It was the pressure got too much from him. He's an alcoholic. And he, he said, I have to leave. I can't do it. Yeah. And he's on his way over to fucking discuss the record. Just, you know. So we with loads of mad shit like that, you know. <laughs> so then, um, eventually, we, we got signed to EMI, you know. Well, uh, can you tell me about... You're, were you like fucking really ambitious at that point? Yeah. Were you like the driver? Well, as I, like, yeah, yeah. Like, I, we, we, we used to rehearse after, after Alan's thing, right? It started getting too loud and too big to be in Alan's garage because his yeah. garage was tiny, right? Mm-hmm. So there was this little, there was this, on the run where the new runway is on the airport, there used to be an old farmhouse there and there was a, a redundant pigsty. Yeah. And the, the people that, 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 lived on the farm allowed us to use this pigsty yeah. now it was just like fucking nine inch blocks with a corrugated tin roof do you know what I mean it used to be fucking bitter cold in the winter and stuff we used to get go from Ballymun we'd pick we'd leave the gear in Ballymun in fucking shopping trolleys wheel it from Ballymun to there every day bar Sunday at nine o'clock in the morning in fucking rain snow anything do you know what I mean yeah. so we used to do that every day We'd be in rehearsal. I used to leave at about one o'clock. I'd go into town, have a singing lesson till about three o'clock, mm. come back and then walk till five o'clock with the band. Mm. So it was absolute dedication. Mm. You know and when I mean? did you start singing lessons? When I started when I was about... I was doing it for fucking 15, 14 years, or 13 years. So I would have started when I'd be 20s or something like yeah. that. Early and, 20s. Uh, and that... That's unusual, isn't it, for yeah. a singer of uh, pop or rock Yeah, band well, well, I used to go, some singing teachers I used to go to, I started, I, like from the time as a kid I started looking, because I wanted to be, to get the best out of I could be, do you know what mm. I mean? Mm. I was always pursuing excellence. Now, you know, you're never going to achieve that, do you know what I mean? But the pursuit of it is going to raise your standards a little and bit. How did it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's helped me in the, you know, now. Your voice is amazing, yeah. Well, I just, I, you kind of understand singing. And again, what I was saying earlier, it's about getting back to who you are, do you know what I mean? And getting rid of all these other idioms. And that's the thing. You see, when you're, when you're expressing an emotion through a song, if you're doing it in somebody else's idiom, you're being a pale imitation of that person. So it's harder for the audience to identify or to connect with that. But when you're giving a real emotion from a real place, 
the audience are going to connect with that, I think. And that's what I learned about singing. It's, the singing I, I, I studied was bel canto. It's like what Pavarotti does, all that kind of... Mm. I've just had to be doing a singing lesson with that guy, there, Mark, we, just before you, you got here. So, <coughs> so that, we had that kind of dedication to, 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 to be successful, you know. Yeah. Or, and... Uh, so when you're li- live on s- stage, because you know, the intensity of your performance is probably, I think, what draws most people to see. I don't know. I think it is. I mean, you seem to be... Li- do you actually lose yourself? In yeah, the, you know what it is. You're not like... Joe, I'll tell you what it is, yeah. right? I think we all have a little bit of idiot in us. We all have a little bit of woman in us, you know, feminine qualities. Mm. We have all these different little little parts of us that we can't really expose to the world or we're called mm. faggots or fucking idiots or whatever. So when you're on a stage, you can kind of just totally mm. let, let all all your inhibitions go and just be exactly mm. who you want to be, do you know what I mean, for that hour and a half or something. And that's what I get out of being on stage, do you know what I mean? So like people say to me, you know, why do you do this or why do you do that? And I don't know. I really don't know because I don't know what I do on stage. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I, from one day, from one thing to the next, people to say to me, that was mad the way you fucking jumped over the speaker that day. I couldn't even remember that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I just get lost in the in the whole thing. But would you, know? you say in any way that it might have been an escape and that's why you want yeah. to do it? As an escape from things that happened in your life when you were young? Yeah. Yeah, and would that have spurred you on? To it would. It would be the, is that. Like, yeah. it, there's loads of like everything that happens. I believe everything that happens in your life. I'm a bit of a Freudian, you know. Mm. I believe everything that happens in your early life manifests in mm. your later life. You know, I was raped when I was a kid. I was raped twice when I was six years of age. When I was nine years of age by two different people. Mm. So that obviously fucked a lot with my head. Do you know what I mean? My sexuality was totally fucked up when I was coming into my adolescence and all that. Mm. So all of those things, you know, all of those. You know, I, I, was, I was in it. I had eight, eight kids in the family. I was the second eldest. So, from being the most important person in the house, like a year later, I, I wasn't. And then every year after that, there was yeah. somebody else taking it. So, you have all these insecurities, all that. Mm. So, then you're looking for approval and you look all these things. Mm. That's, what, that's what you're doing when you're getting on the stage, I think, you know. Mm. But as well as that, like, there's a reason that I chose singing to do it as opposed to being a comic or an actor or a, or a ballet fucking whatever, That's you right. know. So I loved singing as well, so, so it was fortunate that I loved singing so I could, but, I could like express you, myself through that. You say it's looking for attention, but it's also an escape, isn't it? Yes, From that's what I mean. Whatever pain yeah. you might, you might oh, be. Oh, absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you can be yourself. Because when you're in normal life, all those things that happen to you, that pain is there, you know, that, mm. that's colouring everything that you do. So when you're on stage for that couple of hours, you don't have all those things. They're not fucking colouring what you do. So it's an escape from that, you know, you're mm. free of those chains for that two hours, do you know what I mean? But at the end of the day, I don't know if it's a, good a solution. Thing. Oh, it's not a solution. No. Absolutely it's not, but it's an escape for two hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And is that what would have been that... Uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't have consciously thought that. No, of course I'm not. Just I'm, I'm just question, saying, looking yeah. back on it, looking yeah, back yeah, on yeah, it yeah, now. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I think there's kind of a double-edged thing. You know what I mean? I, I think I can see it in me. Oh, self, uh, that's possibly what 
spurred me on to be a performer because I'm a shy person. So but, am I. But yeah. I wanted to get on stage. Yeah, <laughs> so am I. I'm very shy out yeah, in the world. Like yeah. growing up, I, I met Catherine when I was 14. Like mm-hmm. she was one of my first girlfriends, and I'm st- like I married her, you know. Yeah. So I even hadn't even got experience in that world. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You know, pulling, going out, dating, and all that yeah. shy. Because I, I was with her from the time I was 14. Mm. But I was extremely shy, you know. And I, I used to people. I used to sing in my bare feet for years and years. Mm. And the reason I, I did it was, the first gig I was talking about in, in the uh, Ballymont Towers, I was fucking terrified. I was so terrified and so kind of nervous and shy, if you like. I stood there for the whole gig and just in one spot, me, and my hands were all white at the end of the thing, yeah. just holding the mic. So after I said I said I wouldn't do that again. So I used to walk around the stage, but I'd be tripping over guitar leads and stuff. So then I started taking, I practice. I used to take my shoes off so I could feel the leads as I was walking, because my eyes would be closed, you know, because if I opened them and looked at the audience, I'd shit myself, do you yeah. know what I mean? So I used to close my eyes and I could feel my way around with the air, with me, with me, in my bare feet, you know, so... That's but anyway, I just think anyway, whatever that intensity is, I think that's what that's what really. Um, it, it's not even in the lyrics; it's in just the way you're saying. You know what I mean? I know there are great lyrics, but yeah. people can really feel something. I don't know yeah. what it's just there. Well, that's that. It's mm. like you know. Apart, Bowie writes great lyrics and great melodies, mm. but he has something else as well. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Just the Bowie thing. So, you know. Even when you were asking earlier on about why we got these crowds, I never wanted to analyse that because I think if you did, you'd start contriving it then, you know what I mean? And it yeah. wouldn't be real anymore, you know? Yeah. So I tried to just leave that and just accept that it's there and be grateful that it's there, do you know what I mean? But I don't really investigate it a lot, you know? And then why, uh, at what point <laughs> did you start dabbling in, t- in uh, heroin? Um, I didn't start that till, till my daughter was born, so it would have been about 28 or something like that before I started. But, uh, both of my grandfathers were alcoholics and mm. literally keeled over in pubs, you know, just boom, mm. heavy chronic alcoholics. So my parents never drank. So drink was a bit of a no-no in the family and the stories and the course. So I was never into drink and I never liked to drink what I did to Irish society and all that whole gag. I never liked that. So as a young teenager say 18 or whatever I used to start getting into hash and that you know the usual now so I was in the drug culture and unfortunately because you have to go into you know dodgy places to get hash and like the first time I got I got heroin I used to score off this biker over in, in Ratmoyans and one day I went he said I've no hash but I've got skag there and I was afraid to say I didn't know what Skag was. Yeah. So I yeah, give us that, you know. So he gave it to me, and I was in a little little bindle, you know, a little wrap. And I was looking at what you get for a tenner towards what you got. And hash for a tenner, I said, yeah. oh, you're fucking ripping me off. I said, what do you do with this? He said, snort it. And I snorted it, and, you know, I thought, oh, fuck, yeah, I'm home. Right. For straight off, first time. Absolutely. Now, I've tried, I, I, I've, I've drank, you know, I have drank, do you know what mm. I mean, when I was a young fella. I tried hash, I tried acid, I tried coke, I tried speed, I tried them all, right? And I liked, you know, don't get me wrong, I got something out of every one of them, mm. right? But I had this hole inside, this like gnawing emptiness. Do you know when you're starving and you have a kind of mm. empty, kind of hollow kind of thing in your stomach? Mm. Well, I've had that all my life, always had it. And the first day I took heroin, it was gone. Yeah. The f- I'll never forget it. And I just felt I'm fucking home. I thought, this is how Joe Rooney wakes up in the morning. This is how Catherine wakes up in the morning. This is how every this is the way I should feel. John, this is the way it should be. And that hole was gone. And I just felt I didn't feel hoy or stoned. I felt normal. 
you know. Mm. And so the next day I had a choice. So you kind of tell yourself the lie. Think of it this way. Imagine if it takes exactly 28 days to get addicted to heroin. Well, I kind of told myself, I'll do it for exactly 27 days. I'll stop the day before I'm going to get... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's the lie. So you kind did you take your heroin the, the next day after? No, no, I didn't. No, no I, I wouldn't have took it then for fucking probably two years like, after oh, that. Okay, you know what I mean? Okay. So then... You know, it took me a while to recognise that. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the first day it happened, I thought that was brilliant. Do you know what I mean? But you know, you go back to a thing. But mm -hmm. then, then you know, you deal with two two days in a row, then three, and then eventually one day we were going off to Germany. We were gigging, and um, I just felt fucking shite. You know what I mean? So I thought I had the flu. We came back. We were touring, and we finished the German thing, and we came back. We were in Birmingham in, in England. And I said to Danny, I said, you're going to have to get a doctor. I said, I feel fucking shite, you know. So they got the doctor. The doctor came up and says, I can't see anything wrong with you, you know. There's fuck all wrong with you, you don't know. Probably had a bit of a flu. So the next day, we had a gig in Waterford. So I rang a mate of mine. I said, listen, I says, uh, we're playing in Waterford tomorrow. I says, will you bring down a bit of gear for me, mm. you know. So he brought a bit of gear down. So I was in the, I, I was kind of hanging together, you know. We did a gig in Waterford and... Um, those who were having a signing kind of thing after signing mm. autographs for these kids and that. So I went into my room with, with this guy, you know, and I went in like, and I can somersaults out the bleeding door, you know, where's these fucking autographs? <laughs> yeah. So the band seeing this, and there was murder, you know, this yeah. uh, fuck off, you know, you were hanging together. So they knew, that's when I found out I was strung out, you, you know. didn't even know that you I were know. addicted. No, I didn't know. <laughs> and so, so the whole so thing came to a head anyway. And there was murder, we were splitting up that day, I'll never forget it. Was, so I said, look, I'm sorry, you know. So I thought I could just stop, do you know what I mean? But it's, you know, the way heroin is. But you, you, were, you were just sm smoking it. Yeah. You never went to... No, I did, eventually I'd bought, that's why I hadn't, yeah. Yeah. Oh Jesus, yeah. I remember being in, in, in Bray, in a Jackson Bray, in the old, you know the public jacks on the beach, on the promenade, right? Mm -hmm. There's a jacks there, right? Yeah. So I went into the men's jacks, there was no mirror. So I went into the ladies' jacks. All my veins are gone from years of yeah. using them, right? So I used to go into my neck, yeah. and I'm in the jacks, right? In the fucking ladies' jacks. Yeah. And I'm like this with a syringe into me juggle her vein yeah. and these two Owens walked in really old two old old women and they kind of jeez yeah. and I thought ah fuck it don't be overreacting it's only and I yeah. was honestly thought these were overreacting you know it's probably the most horrific thing they've ever seen in their lives do you know yeah. what I mean but I was so lost in that fucking world, do you know what I mean? Yeah. The right thought, yeah, I know it's not a nice way, but don't be giving it all that. It's not that fucking bad, you know? Yeah. Madness. It's to you, that was not that's the, that's yeah. the insanity of addiction, you know? Yeah. It's just, you just, so it got, it got horrendous, horrendous, yeah. you know? But it didn't start off, like it started off, as I said, you know, just, you know, Mickey Mousing around. Yeah, yeah. And like, I seen Kojak when I was a kid, you know, I know what I heard of it, but I thought, that's never going to happen to me, do you know what I mean? And um, that so that kind of screwed up the, you know, when you got to your deal with EMI, would you say that it was the um, heroin that kind of screwed up? It wouldn't have helped, do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But I don't think it was, I don't think, you know, I think people, some people gave it more credence than it deserved. Because, you know, what we were doing at the time, you look at Oasis, do you know what I mean? They, 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 were, they were celebrated 
what we were being crucified for, for ten years earlier. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like they, they were. Remember the, the, the I don't know if you've seen the the, the, the movie, the Supernova thing. But they went to they went to uh, L.A. the first went to L.A. and they thought you were buying coke, but they bought crystal meth. So they were up for three days and they, were, they went on stage and they were all playing different fucking songs. This was the first gig in L.A. I mean, we never got that bad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Never got anything close to that. Like I used to keep all that till after the gig. I'd, you know, I'd go off and get something or whatever. Yeah. But I tried to not let it affect the thing. Now eventually it did because. Obviously, you know, you weren't as productive as you would have been. Mm. But you know, it wasn't. That wouldn't have been. It was. It was how we handled it was what the problem right, was. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So that's that's kind of the band. Would have been out. a strong anti-drug thing in other members of the band. Like they the, were all doing coke. They were doing coke. <laughs> you know what I mean? We went. To, we went to America, yeah. and we fucking snorted our way through America, and mm. we came back, and I couldn't stop. Do you know what I mean? The rest of the band said, right, let's go back to work. And I was, I was an addict, you know what I mean? Mm. Because of all, whatever went on in my life up mm. to that point, you know? Mm. So th- that's the irony of the whole thing. That's what I thought. How can you fuck me out for drugs? Man, he's a bleeding savages, the whole lot of you. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Well, it's, it's there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's there, yeah. <laughs> it is there, yeah. Uh, uh, and um, I don't know, how, when was the first time you tried to stop her? Ah, like Jesus, I can't even remember. No, the, 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 the day I tell you, Waterford, that would have been the first time I tried to stop the next day, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then I tried a million times after that, you know. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I went over to a place called Tamperebach in Thailand. Thailand yeah. And uh, you, you go into this, it's, you, you, you go into like the, it's up in the north, Thailand, in the jungle. And it's a Buddhist monastery, and you're in a gated, like a gated compound. Mm-hmm. And you go in and you take your money off you and your clothes and your passport and all that. And you're given this pink kind of uniform thing. So if you escape out to the outs, people in the villages will know you've escaped from this. So they'll fucking drag you back in again. So you've no money anyway, so there's no point in escaping. You'd starve. So to give you, on the compound, there's like monopoly money that just, it's just valid on the compound you know so you can buy kind of pineapples and cigarettes and stuff ever <laughs> but you were just put in a dormitory and you signed a, a waiver when you went in that if you died it wasn't their responsibility and that you know if you died during the detox so the the the, 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 the abbot were in the in the in the monastery had developed this drink it was made out of all these spices and herbs and shit and you used to drink there's basically 20 of us kneeling in a row and there was a gutter in front of you and a bucket of water beside each person. So you drank this drink and then you drank a load of water. And about five minutes later, I just started vomiting, like fucking profusely, projectile vomiting. And it got all the toxins supposedly out of your system, you know. Mm. But I remember, like, I'd go back into the dormitory to lie down and used to come in and put a mirror up to see if I was still alive, you know. It was yeah. like I was fucking in bits at that, you know. So Do you think that was too much, or was that? Accurate? It was hardcore, you know. Yeah. Now there's a, there's a lot to be said, you know. I I I believe methadone is a great thing, you know. I think it can it's a great thing. It can be abused, obviously, you know. If it's not treated right, it can be abused. Like anything can be abused, but it is a great softer way of getting you off drugs. Do you know what I mean? But sometimes, so for some people, they need. It needs to be hardcore for them not to do it again. Do you know what I mean? So I'd tried loads of soft options, and they went didn't seem to be working for me. So I thought, well, this is a bit hardcore. Maybe this will work. So that was kind of what. Well, what about the initial problem? Is that not what needs to be? Oh yeah, about? yeah. Oh, you have to get back to that. But but you see, yeah. you have to stop. 
to be able to go back to that. Right. Do you understand? Okay. So that's where the NA thing came in. Do you know what I mean? I start going to NA and all that carry on. So in NA, the 12 steps get you to look at, you know, yourself, you know, and look at the reasons you do things and mm. your behavior. It's all about behavior. Like addiction is all about feelings. Mm. It's about you have a feeling and you want to change it to another feeling, mm. you know, by using a drug to do that as opposed to using a joke to do it, or a song to do it, or a story do you know what I mean mm. it's all right to do it in a healthy way but it's not good to do it in a, in a, in a chemical way you know by taking some chemical like alcohol or or heroin or whatever yeah. the fuck you know mm. so you have to get to the obviously you have to get to the reasons so I, I had to investigate all this rape shit that happened when I was a mm. kid and, and you did that through NA or did you go to a counsellor? I did it through NA. Kind of. Well, you, you do it yourself, do you know what I mean? You have yeah. to work on it yourself. But it was NA that gave me the, the tools to be able to investigate. Yeah. And, 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 you know, maybe I could still probably do it going with a counsellor, if I'm totally honest, do you know what mm. I mean? Because mm. there's still a lot of shit there. Mm-hmm. But um, I just, I mean, I have cancer and I have no great fucking desire to get into all that, you know? I just want to get on with it, you know? Are you, are you happy now, would you say? I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy, yeah. Are you? Yeah. Yeah, I, you like. I have three grandkids. I have a daughter. I have three grandkids. I have a lovely wife. Mm. I'm happy where I am. You know, you know. I've, I've nothing to be fucking. I've nothing to be unhappy about. You know what I mean? Mm. I've had a really good life. I've had a really, you know, varied life. A very colourful life. You know, mm. I've been all over the world. You know, what the fuck else can you have? I mean, I could have a bigger house. People say Aslan should have been this and you should have been that. And, that's all bollocks, you know what I mean? Mm. I, I, you know, I, I was saying this, we did that Tommy Tiernan show a few weeks ago, and I was saying this, I would much rather <coughs> today have written Crazy World and This Is, right, those two songs just, mm. and then sang a great version of fucking some song, somebody else's song, cover, yeah. a cover, and be famous, like, like Boyzone or something, mm. and have made millions do you know what I mean I would rather be you know when I go to my grave I'd rather be be who I am mm. than be a millionaire who sang other people's songs oh yeah because that's what's important to me that's not to say that they're wrong and I'm right do you know what I mean yeah do you know that's what that's what their right is that's what's right for, for, for Ronan Keaton or fucking whatever do you know what I mean yeah well you probably chose a more difficult path by, yeah. by wanting to do original yeah and uh, you know that's it's yeah. the path I chose and that's yeah. the path they chose and that's cool yeah, you have to you have to live with your own thing. Yeah. And I, I was just wondering though about I was actually talking to Jimmy Smith. He's the with the Bogey Boys. Do you remember the Bogey I Boys? I know Jimmy, Jimmy Smith. Smith yeah. Right, right. He was talking about this the difference between him having to be in a band and maybe yourselves who are working class lads and having to survive than maybe the Edge who <laughs> may have like he said that he was backstage when you two were at doing a gig and they were trying to get signed and the A and R man had walked out. Be- after their first song and the edge said jeez if we don't get signed in the next year my parents are going to make me go back to college and he was looking at him going I yeah. have to work for a living you know what yeah, I mean? well. do, do, do you know what I mean I don't want to put the edge down he's a lovely fella I'm sure yeah. but uh What's do you know what that? I mean it's hard to, to for it's a work, for, for some people, for some yeah. people to, to, yeah. to, to but that's that's the edge um, the edge the Edge hadn't got a lot of talent as a guitar player, yeah. but he's made huge fucking strides and yeah. huge, 
um, huge inroads in what the little bit of talent he had, and you yeah. can't take that away from him. No, no, and, um, he's a no I'm just saying. He I'm can't just saying. Been, you two yeah. are the, one of the best things ever come out of this country musically, yeah. and a lot of people are jealous of that. And I can understand why Jimmy would be jealous. Jimmy is a ridiculous musician. Mm. He's a hugely mm. talented musician, mm. and like oh, he, he, I don't think he said he was jealous. Now, I don't. No, in but, fairness. but that that sounds <laughs> to me like there's a bit of well, a I bit think of what envy he's saying is the difficulty in. He called it some highfalutin thing like constructionism or something. Anyway, I don't know. Well, basically, well, that you've got to make a living if you're <coughs> a working class fella or girl. Oh, I understand and that, yeah. So you've got to kind of balance that with trying to make a bit of art. Yeah. But you still got to make a living. Yeah. So you, like, you convinced, it was a lot easier for, convinced yeah. Yeah, the rest of the band to give up their jobs. Yeah, I understand what you're saying and I agree with you. And I agree yeah. with Jimmy Smith. There was that, you know... You, a lot of people, some people had it a lot easier than, than we would have, you know. Mm. And even down to, you know, the Hot House Flowers could speak Irish, so they kind of got in with RTE, which helped, you know what I mean? Yeah. All that carry on. You know, so there's always, there's always, money always fucking helps, always. Mm. Do you know what I mean? In, in any fucking, any field. You know, I always look at it this way, right? Mm. I don't know how many show, show jumping potential Tennis champions, yeah. A show jumping champions were born in Fingless yeah. or Ballymun, because you're never exposed to it. So they, they, we never know. Do you understand? Yeah, I absolutely. So, I agree totally. With so you. it's it's a lot easier, you know. These people, you, you know, they usually go to skills that are, you know, if they're really good skills, they can kind of recognise the talent early on mm. and you know capitalise and you know on that talent and mm. bring that talent out. So money always helps. You know what I mean? And and uh, it's just the way it is. That's the way the, the, yeah. the art is. Yeah, I, I, that's what I'm trying to say. It's that money. Like, there's a lot of this um, new uh, uh, kind of idea. If you if you say to yourself, "I can be that," visualizing, that, that, yeah, oh, and all that. Oh Jesus, it's right. all bullshit. But if you come up in the wrong area, it's it's tougher. Yeah, constant. Like, <laughs> you know, Colin Conor McGregor is into that visualization. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you know, I can understand it. You know, it worked for him in fighting. You can't kick your way to, to to the top of the pops or kick your way to the fuck to a Grammy, or you yeah. can't kick your way to an Oscar or punch your way to an Oscar. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or you can't t- you can't joke your way to a fucking. Do you understand? Or, or, so it all depends on the the medium you, you choose in your visualization. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't really agree with that totally because. You know, some bloke in Phoenix could have visualised all he fucking liked about being the, the Wimbledon champion, mm. but the chances of it ever happening were fucking slim. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. You know, and he would have had to do a lot more visualisation than <laughs> other people that <laughs> yeah, were born exactly. in fucking. Yeah, you know. I'm not saying you can't do it. But, uh, oh, it is. It's but, possible, but, but you know, but, everything's everything's uh, relative, isn't it? Yeah, do you know it what is, I mean? Yeah. I was just thinking though, as well, like you know when. Um, the way it is now with the music industry, like there probably wouldn't be, you know, you, 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 well, exactly. So you got to deal with EMI, you got to tour America and yeah. do we all the that last fucking bad all shit. That. Yeah. No band's going to get that no, now, are they? And that's great, you know. Yeah. Not not great that's not happening, but it's no. great that we got in there before the whole thing ended, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because now records, you see, the re- record, record companies don't matter anymore because records don't matter anymore. Yeah. For example, we released an album, one of the, not the last album, the album just before that, and <laughs> it cost us ninety grand to record the album, right? Yeah. So we and we pay it for it. We pay for it, finance everything ourselves. Now we don't have a record company anymore to finance. Right. Now we use a record company to distribute the album because they have the distribution network. But we actually to keep to keep artistic control over the music, 
we pay for what we do ourselves because we found that when you're with a record company they want you to sound like this and they give you this producer to, you know and it, mm. it changes who you are and you end up with a product that you're not happy with and stuff like that so we found this way was better for us so anyway because it's 90 grand to record the album in the first two weeks we sold £40,000 worth of albums and there was £250,000 worth downloaded illegally in the yeah. first two weeks of the fucking launch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's really not, the, only, the only point in making a record today is to keep your profile... It's just like an ad or something. Exactly. Yeah. That's all it is. It's not like an ad. It is an ad. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's to keep your profile up there and let people know what you're doing. Do you know what I mean? What, what mm-hmm. kind of music you're doing. But as regards... And even like, say, Bowie, you were, you were talking about how little Bowie had sold up to... Yes. Uh, that... Yeah, up to the internet. That's dance, say. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Like, he would never have got to develop now, no, would he? No, as an Oh, no, absolutely. Listen, yeah. there would be no Bob Dylan today. There would be no Elton John today. Yeah. None of those people would exist today. Years ago, they used to sign on development deals. Even you too. You two, when they were signed, they weren't expected to kick it off on their first album. Yeah. They were kind of, their sec- the director would have been looking for their second or third album mm. for it to happen. Let them develop, you know. Mm. No such thing. You make an album now. And if it's not number five in the fucking church, you drop the next day. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I've seen these programs on TV, these boy band things and all. Mm. And like you see a man, he put a band together, a boy band. This is the guy that used to manage um, New Kids on the Block. Yeah. So he had a thing called Forming the Band. It was a, a documentary thing on mm. the telly. So they formed this band. He auditioned hundreds of singers, the usual show. Got a band together. Kind of got them in, got songwriters in, wrote the song, got stylists and stylized the band gave them their image everything was there band looked great sounded great released the record mm. so they're waiting for it to go on the charts and it says it's gone up to fucking 14 if it doesn't get to 10 yeah. and it didn't you're fucking sacked yeah next day you know it's bizarre because I would have thought so there'll the, never be another we, Bowie a lot of people were used to hate the record companies do you know what I mean but yeah. now looking back on it you think oh, it, was, it, was so it did serve a purpose yeah. yeah see because what happened is a lot of record companies Although they had a lot of faults and a lot of shite and there was a lot of bollocks, mm. they also, a lot of the people were people that were in bands, do you know what I mean, who, who didn't succeed in bands but got, wanted to stay in the music industry mm. and became A&R men. Then they became fucking mm. managers of different record companies and or formed their own little record company because they didn't like what was happening in big record companies. Mm. So you had all your independent record companies for different types of music. Like I was reading uh, or I was listening to a podcast about Bowie and even after he's released The Man Who Sold the World, I think, it didn't sell that much, but the record company flew him over to New York and he met Lou Reed and Andy Warhol and all yeah. that. I mean, how would he do that now, you know? No, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't. It wouldn't yeah. happen now. And it, that inspired him. You Absolutely, know, and, yeah. All those yeah. things made him who he was, you know, and yeah. he developed as an artist. And even probably Lou Reed wasn't selling any records either. <laughs> Lou Reed would have never sold a record without Bowie. Iggy Pop would have never sold a record, probably. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He, yeah. he as well as them helping his career, he fucking launched their careers. Do you know what I mean? He yeah. launched a lot of people's careers. Mm. So, mm. That, that whole that whole mixing bowl you know it was very healthy and record companies did that then and you know mm. like we were put in with different people yeah, you know so it's very healthy mm. you know like one thing the record company when we were at EMI the first album we, we, I Love This Is The Sea the, the, the Waterboys album oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hole of the Moon and all on it 
And Carl Wallinger was in the band then. He, he, he had a band called World Party after that. I don't know if you remember him. Mm. But he was he was one of the main people, as well as Mike... Uh, Scott. Scott. In, in, uh, he was the main songwriter in, in The Waterboys. So I heard that album and I thought, this this production, and I just loved it. It was nice and raw and edgy. and mm. So a guy called Mick Glossop done it. So we said, we want this guy, Mick Glossop. They were saying, they were trying to put us with a whammy type Really, producer, type, and yeah. Billy had the black hair, a blonde hair, and I had the black hair. We looked black and white, fucking Scotch whiskey. They were yeah. almost, you know, trying to promote. Yeah, I said, fuck that, no way, we're not going that way. So you have that, you have to fight against that sort so of. That shit, was the side know? of the record company that was a bit. You yeah, to fight against, but then Absolutely. the other side. But then the other side is very good, you know. Yeah. Like they, they gave like we, we they gave us the money to go over and tour America, you know. Mm. We, we, I mean, we toured, we, we toured with Stiff Little Fingers. We done a tour of Europe mm. with Stiff Little Fingers. They gave us the money to be able to do that because you, you have to buy onto these tours. You know, you, you, people think you get onto these tours and and that you're getting paid, but no, you're actually paying you, to get you, on. We, we toured with Graham Parker. America it cost us sixty grand to tour America with him, mm. and you know it cost eighty grand in the end. But we got sixty grand initially off the record company. Mm. So all those things are possible. Plus, we could get Mick Glossop and produce the album mm. because. Like he 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 charges what two thousand pound a day. You couldn't afford to do that now. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So they they pay for all that. You know. Now you're paying for it eventually, but they loan you. A record company's like a bank. Mm. They loan you the money. So to in do advance that. is something you have to pay back. Basically. Oh, absolutely. Well, if you make money, you'll pay it back. Yeah. If and you it, don't make any money. Yeah, and you have to sell a lot of records to make money, you know. Mm. Because mm. when you see it's what people don't understand is right when you sell a record. Only probably five out of that record is yours. Mm. So only that five goes off your bill. Mm. Like the fucking 13 euros doesn't go off your bill. No. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, right. So it yeah, takes yeah. a long time to pay that money back. And, and they have that sus, you're you know? paying for the limos as well and all oh, that. Everything. Yeah. Every fucking... Listen, I tell you. Mm. We had a guy called Bud Prager, right? He used to manage Foreigner. Mm. And he was managing us for a while. So we met him over in New York, right? Yeah. And the day we were, one of the days we were meeting him, he had a look, huge office and all that. He managed Benny King. He managed a lot of big artists. Mm. But I couldn't make it this day. I was fucking dying with the flu, right? Mm. So I stayed. I was, li- we were, I was living in an apartment in New York. So I'm in the apartment anyway. And uh, one of the lads came back with a bowl of chicken soup and says, uh, Bud's daughter who worked for him, is, you know, said, this is really good chicken broth. It'll help you with your cold. Mm. Why, we got a fucking bill for it. Yeah? We got a bill for the fucking cup of soup. <laughs> fucking animals. So, yeah. you know, for fuck's sake. And it, uh, how did you travel around America? Were you flying from place to place? Was it by tour bus? Tour bus and tour flying. Bus. Boat, you know. Yeah, yeah. We, we Actually, no, sorry, it wasn't. We tour, we we, uh, we flew over and then we bust. It was tour, great. Tour bus? Oh, it was fucking great. Was it, yeah? Absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. Like a sleeper bus, you know, you could sleep on it. But it's just, I mean, what, how, we were always in, always in more of America than most Americans were, do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I remember reading a statistic that um, 30% or 80% of Americans have never been 30 miles outside a radius of where they are born. Mm. Yes. You know, that's why they're so fucked up, you know. <laughs> that's why they vote for Trump. Yeah. But, you know, I've seen low, I've seen the whole of America, you know, and driving, you know, down fucking all these moral highways and shit like that and going to these little, you know, the, with the truck stops and just all mm. that. Just the whole thing was great. I remember we were playing in Detroit, right? And in the place, the street, the street that it was on was um, at about nine o'clock, a fucking, yeah. it was like a real scummy area, right? Yeah. And 
a police car and a line of policemen went up the street and all the drug dealers, you could look out the window of the gig, right, when he went into the gig, when we pulled up at the gig, a bloke came out with a gun and stood at the fucking van with a gun, an armed guard, while you yeah. were loading the gear in, because the blokes would come up and just take the gear off, you had the scumbags, right? So, they're all, they're all selling, you could see them selling drugs on the corners and all, which is handy, but um, <laughs> when the, the, this sweep came up, right, at about nine o'clock, this sweep came up the street, it was like Leeson Street, after nine o'clock, mm. then all these fucking cars start pulling up, like fucking Jags and Porsches and all this, you know, mm. pulling up and all these people getting out, coming into all the clubs, and into where we were playing as well, do you know what mm. I mean? So, I went out. I said, this is fucking deadly. So I went out before we went on and I'm sitting on the steps with the bouncers, you know, and this bloke pulls up in a fucking, uh, in, a, in a Porsche and he gets out and this young bloke was just walking by and your man gets out of the car and he does this. <clears throat> see, a man just takes the fucking keys and he kind of, he looked at, he looked over at us to see, and he's going to, your man thought he was the valet, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He gets into your man's Porsche and he's fucking gone. <laughs> We're sitting there pissing ourselves laughing. Your man thought he was, oh, it was fucking great. But just, just stuff, the stuff you see, you know. I remember we were playing in New York and I went outside to this bloke. He was outside and he's not been there. I was fucking, there was snow. New York, and we haven't been in New York in the winter. In winter, yeah, the snow. It's yeah. fucking cold, cold. Yeah. This bloke was sitting outside the, the venue all night, all day. As we were setting up right through to the gig at late at night, he was still fucking out with a cup begging, you know. Yeah. So I went out to him and I was, I was talking to him. I fucking felt terrible sorry for him. I ended up going off and scoring with him. Mm-hmm. I said, come here, you don't know where to get a bit of gear. He says, yeah. He said, I don't take it. So I take crack. I said, well, look, I'll buy you some crack if you fucking get us some gear, you know. Yeah. So the two of us went off in a taxi and we got it. But I was talking to him then and I said, how the fuck, you know, did you end up like uh, like sitting on the fucking street all day? Mm. He was married, he was a carpenter, and he was married to this board, right? And it was, it was our birthday, so he came home early to give her a surprise and caught her in bed with this bloke. Marriage broke up, she fucked him out, and he just kind of went on a bit of a bender and then fell through the cracks. And in America, there's no social welfare system, mm. so if you go through the cracks, it's very fucking hard to get back up again, do you know mm. what I mean? That was it, he was fucked. But I'll tell you a, f- a funny story about New York, right? When I was living in New York, when we split from, from Aslan, I was with Nick Conagoff, I think called Dignam McGough. I yeah. went off to America. We were living, I was living in New York for about a year. So we were gigging all around the east coast of America and stuff. So I was scoring down in Alphabet City every You know, I'd scored my gear, you know. Mm. And uh, I scored off this bloke. And one day he says to me, instead of getting 10 bags, dime bags, they call them, mm. you know, he says, well, don't you get like a gram? It'd be much cheaper for you to buy a bit of weight, you know what I mean? Mm. So he said, well, can you get me a gram? He said, yeah, no problem, you know. So the next day, met him, and uh, he gave me, I gave him $150 or something, and he gave me the Grand gear, you know? Mm. So we opened it, and see, heroin here is brown. Heroin here is brown. Yeah. The heroin in America is white. It's white so, yeah. you know, yeah. so I wet my finger and done that, and it started sizzling on my tongue. Said, this is fucking Andrew's liver salts. Yeah. So this was a big fucker, you know, because like over six. So yeah. I went, oi! And your man ran, right? So I fucking ran after him. Yeah. So I'm running through fucking New York, through Alfred. He ran into the projects, which would be the Ballymun of fucking New York. Yeah. I'm running after him. Yeah. And next minute, I, I'm looking, I'm the only white fucker in the whole place. There, everybody's black. Mm. And the two of us just must have had a, 
an epiphany at the same moment where he said, what am I running from this prick for? And I said, yeah. what am I going to do if I catch this fucker? Yeah, 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 yeah. So he turns around, he's just like a cartoon, he's fucking chasing me out of the place. <laughs> but just <laughs> fucking crazy shit, you know? Mad, mad shit. Fucking hell. Mad. Just thought of that there. Funny yeah. story. And do you think, it's a, is it possible you could be a, a like... Um, psychopath. <laughs> psychopath. <laughs> no, that you could um, just live and be... And no. take heroin and just, if you had, uh, you kept your no, habit I under. No, I thought that, but I thought that. Because you're saying idea. $150 a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But way. you see, addiction is a progressive disease. Yeah, yeah. So it progresses. So apart from the fact that your tolerance will build. So yeah. if $10 would do you for a day today, mm. in a month's time, $50 you'd need for a day is geared. Do you know what I mean? Right, okay. So it keeps going up. Plus you as a human being deteriorate as your addiction progresses. Do you know mm. what I mean? You want more and more. So mm. it wouldn't work. It just, I taught yeah. that myself. I yeah. thought if people just allowed me to just... I'll earn my own money. I don't have to go out rob. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. can earn my money. I can get enough heroin to keep me going. If my wife accepts and everybody accepts it. But you're going to be sitting there goofing out. you know what I mean? Mm. It's, it's, it doesn't, no, you know, it doesn't it's in an ideal world. Now, I do believe that when people are trying to come off heroin and they go into a methadone course, mm. methadone stops you a craving for heroin. Yeah. Now, you don't really get a stone out of it. There's no... But it can it can stabilize you long enough yeah. for you to be able to try and help yourself and yeah, get yourself, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you can detox easier off methadone than you can. Oh, oh, what, so what uh, what is the length of time it takes to for the withdrawal to? It's a it? it's a piece of string, you know. Oh, right, okay. You know, I remember stopping one time and I didn't sleep for a month, a whole month. A month? I didn't sleep one fucking minute for a month because you know. Heroin, you know, is, and you what you getting all aches and stuff, and yeah, yeah, you, you will have you're in a lot. You could get see heroin's a muscle relaxant, right? Mm. But it also how how the the the, the, the how it's the reason so hard to stop taking it is, you have endorphin glands in your body, right? Mm. As you know, so when you stub your toe or if you want to have a shit and all these mm. pains that you'd get through your body, as soon as they happen to you to a normal person, your endorphin gland kicks in and floods you with endorphins yeah. to help you through that moment. Yeah, if you stub if you stub your toe or whatever. If you stub your toe or whatever. So when you take heroin, every day you tell the endorphin gland, we don't need you, we have your, our own source. So eventually your endorphin gland shuts down. Mm. So when you stop taking heroin, then this thing is not working anymore. So you feel all those little aches and pains and fucking... Plus heroin is an anesthetic almost. You know what I mean? It stops feeling pain. Mm. So when you, you haven't felt pain for a long time, you haven't felt emotions for a long time. So when you stop, you come back with a fucking vengeance. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like I remember stopping and singing. Well, you doing a gig one day and I was singing the song Crazy World actually and Catherine was in the audience and I just caught her. My eye just kind of caught her for how can I protect you in this crazy? Just mm. that line. And I just thought, you haven't been, you prick. You haven't been protecting. You haven't been fucking doing what you should be doing as a whole. Mm. And I lost it. I, I, was, I was in, at the time, I was only at the stop in two weeks, maybe. So I was still in kind of a bit of withdrawals, do you know what I mean? So things like On that. On stage you lost it. Yeah. Just start, I had to get Billy to take over the song. I just mm. fucking lost it. I just started bawling my eyes out on stage. So, mm. you, you, you know, all that shit, you know. That's what makes and it so hard. Like trouble you that you weren't around for your kids, maybe sometimes. Yes, of course. Yeah. Oh fuck! When I when I got the cancer, yeah. you know, I was in the hospital, and I was going through all my life, you know, and 
and I remember my daughter coming up and she was there, you know, and I just cried for maybe two days, do you know what I mean, just apologising to her and telling her I was so sorry for fucking all the all the insecurities I fucking gave her mm. because she didn't think she was worth the love that I wasn't giving her, you know what mm. I'm saying? So all those things are that she's inherited because of me and I can see them, do you know what I mean? Mm. And, you know, uh, that that's horrifying, do you know what I mean? That, that That's mm. probably... The, the, you know, even now thinking about it, it's fucking, it, you know, it's bad. It's that's something I never get over, and it's something I can I can't undo. As all I can do is be better, a better person yeah. today. Do you know what I mean? But that, even saying that, that's very logic. Do you know what I mean? But when I go to bed and I'm lying in bed at night and I think of that shit, that hurts. You know what I mean? Mm. That, I don't, I don't like that about myself. You know, that's one I fucked up big time. You, you know. Talk to her about it, you? Oh yeah, I apologize. She says, "Look, it doesn't matter. You know, you were the best you could be at that time, and all." But that doesn't do anything. That doesn't make me feel. You know, it makes me feel a bit better, but I still feel like a cunt. I still, you know, I don't have a lot of regrets in my life of things I've done. Do you know, what I, mean? mm. I don't even regret becoming an addict because it helped me who I am. But mm. I do regret things like that. You know what I mean? Mm. That I fucking did. You know, I wasn't who I should have been for. Mm. My family, you know. Mm. That's a big deal. And you can't go back. You yeah. can't. Mm. So that fucking and it only came to it only as I said when I got the cancer that time, and I was in hospital, it, it, like I was just val- I was evaluating everything, you know, and that mm. was the biggest thing that 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 was my biggest upset in life and my biggest fucking regret, you know. So, uh, yeah, all the logical, all the logical fucking explanation and. Doesn't, doesn't, you, you can't know. even when you think about it, you, you can't. What happened to you as a kid? You, there's nothing you could have done. Yeah. And then that leads yeah, on but to even the next that, thing. Even that, know. even yeah. that, even knowing that, yeah. doesn't help. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's still, it's still like I mean, it, it will help a little bit. You know what I mean? And the fact that mm. Catherine and Kara would forgive you, you know, helps a little bit. But it's still, you still feel like a tool. Yeah. You know, so that's that. That's that. No. Mm. Anyway, on that bombshell, <laughs> as Clarkson would say, I only got, I used to hate that show, and I only got into it recently. It's fucking deadly. Uh, Partridge, no, Alan uh, Partridge, no, no uh, Clarkson. Oh yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's top gear, uh, top gear. Yeah. Alan Partridge's a genius. Yeah. He used to say that as well. On that bombshell, oh, does he? Yeah, yeah. He's fucking great. He is great. Yeah, he's amazing. He's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. But, yeah. Steve Coogan. Yeah, he's brilliant. Um, yeah okay well listen I suppose I won't keep you any longer unless you want to keep talking no, that's but, cool uh, if you're happy I'm happy <laughs> we ended on a happy you want your now. kitchen back <laughs> and um, Charlie Charlie's looking Jack or Jack sorry Jack sorry Jack he's calling you Charlie yeah sorry why is Charlie on your mind uh, I was up with Eric Lawler his dog's called Charlie actually that's what it is right okay it's not Charlie <laughs> Um, well, listen, cool. I haven't met you. Well, I've only met you that time at Slane briefly, but it's been great. Yeah, I enjoy that myself, um, actually. Oh, yeah. I hate doing an interview, Joe. Mm. You know, I've done a lot of interviews, mm. and I've actually said it to a lot of kids who'll be coming out of college, you know, mm. and and do you have a list of questions, you know? Mm. I fucking hate interviews like that. It's, you don't no, get that done, you know? It's, 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 it's better just talking like that, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
That's yeah. how, how, are you, how are you doing now? Like you're, how, right. Uh, the, the, the condition I have is called amyloidosis. I have two cancers. I have a thing mm. called amyloidosis and multiple, multiple myeloma. Right, mm. the amyloidosis is the most serious one. So basically how it works is my, my blood, my marrow produces, everybody's marrow produces these proteins called lambda and kappa proteins, right? Mm. So you and everybody produces one for one. So there's a ratio of one for one, mm. right? So what I do is I produce two, I, I start, my kappa protein produces more negative proteins, right? Mm. And these proteins attack attack my uh, organs, my kidneys and my heart and all that mm. carry on. So when I got the amyloidosis, it did that by the time they diagnosed it, my heart, I have a defibrillator here, you know, mm. defibrillator for kicking yeah, arm. Yeah. So I flatlined in hospital and all because my heart is about two towards, it works about two towards of its, its capacity now, you know, mm. it's what it should be. So by the time they diagnosed it and stopped the the, the chemo stopped the production of this mm. thing. So when he did when I did the chemo, I did the chemo four years ago. So the chemo kind of stopped the production of the amyloid or the cancer, mm. and uh, for four years on average it stops it. So I went. I have to go to London because they have a scan over there called a SAP scan. They don't have one here that detects it. So I was over there in January, the beginning of this month. And they seen it was reproducing again. Mm. So I'm back on chemotherapy. So I started chemotherapy a couple of weeks ago because it's pre- it's pre- cancer's producing again. Mm. So because it stopped it the first time doesn't mean it's going to stop it this time. You don't know. Every mm. time they roll out the dice. Mm. So I'm just hoping at the moment, you know. But I'm mm. really sick at the moment, like at the end of my stomach. And you're seeing me there in and out of the pain. Yeah. I'm on fluid because it affects your kidneys and stuff. You're not getting rid of fluids. So you yes. have to take tablets to make it get rid of fluids. And yeah, right. Yeah. So it's a fucking nightmare, you know. Yeah. I was actually talking to Andrew uh, Casty down in Boyles and Slane there, and he was. Oh, saying yeah. that His father. Uh, That's right. I met sick. his father just before he died, and uh, he said that he oh, had to carry him down the stairs. That's right, that right for the gig. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he did. You say what has he got or something? What's wrong with him? Because no, I don't know. Uh, no, 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 I knew no, he was no, sick. I knew no, he had no, cancer no, and all that. No, no, no. No, yeah, that was very sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was up, he was very ill, you know, and he was, it was just before he died. Yeah. And uh, what happened was he, he'd, want, he'd wanted to run a festival in, in Slane a couple of years before that, like yeah. the one that I met you at. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. it never materialized, but he wanted us to, to, to play at it, you know, mm. to, to headline it, but it never materialized. Mm, mm. So he asked us, would we play? It was just before he died. Mm. Andrew Asses would be doing a gig in Boyles. Yeah. So the only way we could make it feasible was to do two gigs because it cost us too much to go up and do one gig. So yeah. we did two nights there and it was particularly, it might as well just be for the father. And there were great gigs and that, mm. you know, but we did it specifically for the father. And then I think the reason that that gig happened last year mm. was Andrew probably still had it in his you know, that his dad always wanted to do this. Yeah, right, I think, yeah. I'm just surprising right. here. Yeah. But that's, the, yeah, that's the story. But no, yeah. I, maybe one of the other said something like that. I don't know, but yeah, I, okay, I, I yeah. knew what the whole deal was. So. Right, 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 right. Uh, anyway, yeah, thanks for having a chat. I was just talking, I believe you were in the Luke Kelly... Uh, oh, that was tribute. great, yeah. Yeah. Enjoyed that. I believe yeah. you sang uh, uh, at a higher... Who told you that? <laughs> Vinny told me. Oh, man, do you know what happened was, right... I sing, I sing uh, Greenfield of France in A, right, and I sing Crazy World in D, right. Mm. So I had no guitar, I had no musicians with me. I just went in, and I met a banjo player for the first time, an Illinois player, uh, John Sheen from the Dubliners, the violin player, and and 
the guitarist. So I said, right, I do. I do that and I do that and see. So we went to a verse of each in the dressing room yeah. like five minutes before the gig, right? Yeah. So I said, when we go out, you just hit the force card and I'm off. That'll get me the note and I'm head off, right? Mm. So we just put on. So instead of it starting, when I was a young lad, you hit the card. When I was a young lad, I carried me pack. So by the time it went, Jesus. by the time it got to, uh, what's the chorus of it? And um, the man played hey. waltzing Matilda. You were up there. was up fucking there. So yeah. I says to her on the way home, I says, I said, the last time the chemo affected my voice really badly. Yeah. I said, the fucking chemo's already hit my voice. I says, oh, I was bleeding, struggling with that song. Yeah. I said, that's an easy song. Normally I wouldn't have a problem with it. Yeah. I says, I was fucking struggling there. And I was depressed as fuck yeah. all day Sunday here. I was fucking God. Honest to God, I was in the height of it. So I'm here on Sunday night and Chris... Cavanagh, the guy who does the Lou Kelly, who, who he banjo player on the night, says to me, you know, he says, he rang me and he says, Jesus, John Shane come over to me. He says, that fucker's not human, you know. And I says, why? He says, we hit the first card of Crazy World, yeah. which is a D, and you start singing fucking Greenfields of France. So that's a half an octave up. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? He says, how the fuck is he hitting those notes? Yeah. And I says, you're bleeding, kidding me. <laughs> I says, I'm at the being slit, slitting me fucking wrists here all day today, thinking my voice was gone because I couldn't get the notes as comfortably as I'd normally get them, you know. That's so unbelievable. Was fucking, yeah, I was, I was fucking thrilled because I really thought, my voice is fucked, that's it, I'm fucked. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't know, I don't know, as a singer, right, every time, every morning you wake up, and I, I kind of you know, do a few little sing something just to see if your voice still there. It's, it's probably like you as a comedian. Do you know mm. what I mean? You're always trying to keep on top of your game. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So the thoughts of my voice being gone, it's fucking crucified no. me. Like all the addictions thing and all. If I hadn't had this, I'd have never got out of that. Mm. Like no matter how much fucking work I'd have done on myself, mm. if I hadn't had music and me singing and that, mm. I couldn't have done it. That's what helped. That was a huge, you know... So yeah, yeah. No, that's well, I hope it's recorded. I think it is actually. It is recorded. Yeah, yeah. I tell you, I wouldn't listen to it because no, it, no it's fucking dread, terrible. You know, it's because you know I wasn't comfortable singing. Oh, so right, it's okay. kind of I'm struggling through it. You know, ah, it sounds good. Listen to me. It might, um, it's fine on YouTube or something. I'm going to ask you, Christy. I don't know if you you, you can do it if you want. But with any chance you could sing a song or something like that? <laughs> what would you like me to sing? Uh, obviously a cappella, but. Uh, right. I'll sing a verse to the Greenfields of France. Ah, right? class. Oh, yeah, hold on, I'll get Thanks. water. Um. Um. Oh, wait, hold on. Right, this is a song, I've only sang it a couple of times. It's written by the same bloke who wrote the Greenfields of France, a guy called Eric Bogle. He's a Scottish immigrant, lives in um, Australia, and he was a real anti-war kind of dude. He's still mm. alive. Mm. But he wrote this song, and he wrote Greenfields of France. I'll just sing a verse of it, right? Thanks. <clears throat> when I was a young lad, I carried me pack and I lived a fair life of a rover. From Murray's Green Basin to the dirty outback, I waltzed my Matilda all over. Then in 1916, my country said, son, it's time to stop your rambling, there's work to be done. So they gave me a tin hat and they gave me a gun and they sent me away to the war and the band played 
waltzing Matilda as the ship pulled away from the quay but amid all the cheers flag waving and tears we were sailed off to Gallipoli tis well I remember that terrible day when our blood stained the sand and the water and in that hellhole they called Suvla Bay we were butchered like lambs to the slaughter then a big Turkish shell blew me arse overhead and when I awoke in my hospital bed and I saw what it done oh I wished I was dead never knew there were worse things than dying so no more I'll go waltzing Matilda across the green bush far and near for to hump tent and pegs a man needs both legs no more waltzing Matilda for me waltzing Matilda waltzing Matilda who'll come a waltzing Matilda with me and their ghosts can be heard as they march past the billabong who'll come a waltzing Matilda with me well, that was great, wasn't it? I mean, what a man. Christy uh, was just brilliant, and his voice is amazing. Um, I, I would love to talk to him again sometime. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, but look, if it's your first time uh, listening to the podcast... Do do have a listen into the archive there. There's lots of great ones. Uh, I, we mentioned Willie White at the beginning, but there's uh, also a great one with Anne Gildee, I would say. I uh, really like that. I'm going to mention ones that aren't uh, the famous people that everybody goes to listen to. There's also uh, Jason Byrne that's uh, live at the Stag's Head. He, he's one of the more famous people, but it's I, I put the title on wrong there. I just said live at the Stag's Head, but it's Jason Byrne, and so if you could check that one out. I think it's the last live one we did at the Stag's Head. And um, there's um, Mundy, there's Simon Delaney, Fikra Trench, pretty good one. Oh, Christine Volset more recently, the girl who spent time with the guys who ride horses around city centre in, in uh, around Cork Street uh, yeah so there's lots of lots of good ones there and uh, yeah coming up there's lots of good ones and uh, I'm on uh, for my gigs and for any contact you want to make with me you can get me at www.joerooneycomedian.com or on my twitter joerooney1 and you can tell me Give me your fucking reaction to the podcast on t- on Twitter. Tweet, tweet. If you like it, tweet about it. Go on Facebook at Joe Rooney. See you next time. I'm oh, yo. Yeah, man. See ya. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.